Love Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, this afternoon it's our intention that we look at two miracles involving the prophet Elisha. We're going to be considering particularly the latter part of 2 Kings chapter 2, beginning at verse 15. We remember, first of all, that in the Old Testament, miracles do occur. It's not just something that the New Testament has. The Old Testament has many records of miracles. God uses these miracles to guide His people, to comfort His people at times, to protect His people at other times, and to give them victory over their enemies, amongst other things. Miracles are from God. And of course, these miracles point forward to the greatest miracle of them all, when God takes on human flesh, the incarnation. God becoming man and walking here on this earth for some 30 years. Ultimately, everything in the Old Testament points forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything in the New Testament points, if you will, back at Him. So also this story here in 2 Kings chapter 2, it does this as well. It points us to the Lord Jesus Christ and what He came to do here on earth. And so this afternoon, we're going to consider these, these words from our, our, our God. Our theme is the Word of God determines life and death. Now, it's estimated that all of this is happening, this event is happening approximately six or perhaps as long as eight years after Elisha first has met up with Elijah. And now one prophet is, 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 if you will, fading out of biblical view, out of the biblical picture, and another one is coming into view. And these two men are traveling together. They start out in Gilgal. They then go to Bethel, and then they go to Jericho, and these, these places are not so far apart. And each stop, Elijah tells Elisha to stay behind, but, but no, Elisha doesn't want anything to do with that. And as they go on, they meet up with some other prophets, and it seems that everybody knows that this is going to be the last day for Elijah, and it's a summer day, but Elisha doesn't want to talk about it. And when they arrive at the Jordan, Elijah uses his coat, hits the water, the waters part just like they had so many years before when Israel had come into the land. And then they're across, there are some final words together. Elijah's last, Elisha's last request is for a double portion of Elijah's spirit to be with him. And his request for a double portion is what a firstborn son would expect to get from his father. Here's Elisha asking for the right of the office of Elijah as God's prophet. And he calls Elijah father when he sees what happens next. And he calls out the chariots and the horsemen of Israel as he watches Elijah's departure into the whirlwind. Think of it. This is at a time when God's people on the other side of the Jordan are worshiping Baal. Baal was the storm god. And here Elisha gets a taste, a sight of the only true god who sends a storm, a whirlwind, to take home his prophet. It's a powerful revelation. And, and Elisha tears his clothes as his father Elijah is escorted out of his earthly life to be with God. It's a display of power that sometimes we can tend to ignore or forget when it comes to our God. People, people often look at God as not 
all that powerful. He's more a benign, a gentile, a gentle old man, someone who smiles and loves his people to bits, and he puts up with their sins. He just, he just, he just waves them away. He ignores them, and we don't, we don't account for his power, his majesty. But to have this almighty God as our God, to be part of his king means to be on, on that side, that side of power. Psalm 68 reminds us of this. Of this reminds us of this. It says in verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. Verse 17, the chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. And the Lord is among them as in Sinai, in the holy place. This, this is the God who's in charge here. This is a demonstration of his power. And he's the one who takes Elijah to his heavenly reward. These are his chariots, his horsemen. He is the almighty God. And as Elijah, Elisha sees Elijah, his master, go, he travels back over the same route from which he came. He uses the coat he inherited from Elijah. It was the symbol of authority. He hits the water of the Jordan. It parts. God parts it for him, and he walks across on dry ground. And on the other side, he meets up with 50 prophets. They want to send out a search party. They, they don't seem to believe Elisha. Well, you know, if you go up in a whirlwind, you're going to fall down somewhere. They insist on going and looking, and he gives in. They go out for three days, and, and they come back empty-handed, only to hear from Elisha, I told you so. I told you so. Well, that's all the context. Where is Elisha right now? He's in Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho tell him about their water problem. Remember, remember Jericho? Jericho had been destroyed long ago. The Israelites had walked around it for seven days. God had destroyed the city. The walls had come down. And Joshua, who was the general at the time, had cursed the city. He said, Joshua 6, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and rebuilds or builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundation with his firstborn and with his youngest. He shall set his gates. Jericho was cursed, and at the same time, it was a pleasant place, it seemed. It seemed a good place to live, and when places seem good, when they're pleasant, people move back in, even, even if there's a curse. And so this city has been rebuilt. It's been rebuilt some 20 years before. First Kings chapter 16 tells us about that. It says, in Ahab's time, Heel, that was the man's name, Heel of Bethel, rebuilt Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of his firstborn son, Abiram, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, in accordance with the word of the Lord spoken by Joshua, son of Nun. This man, Heel, he had disobeyed God, and he paid the price. He paid the price. Heel disobeyed, and he had at least two graves to show for it. God's curse was still there, and for these people that lived there, the curse had settled, it seems, into the groundwater. The groundwater was a huge problem. It was, it was causing death. 
The original language, the, the original language actually su suggests that it was causing miscarriages amongst both the animals and also the people. Place is cursed. And the people, they should have known this. Maybe they even did because God had warned them about it. Back in Exodus 23, we read, Worship the Lord your God, and His blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness amongst you, and none will miscarry or be barren in your land. I will give you a full lifespan. The problem is, is that they were worshiping Baal. And the city had been rebuilt against the will of God. And now they're seeing death all around them. Miscarriages caused by their disobedience. And the city officials know that the only way to solve the problem is go back to the person who issued the curse in the first place. Go back to God. And so they go to his prophet who's right there with them. Notice, notice that they didn't go to Baal, the fertility God. Baal, fix our problem. No, they go to Elisha. And Elisha asks for salt in a new bowl. He throws it into the water. The water is healed. It's not the salt. It's not the, the bowl. The curse is removed by way of a miracle from Elisha's God. And at this point, as the reader of, of this story, some thousands of years later, we're, we're tempted to just, to just move on. You know, that's, that's, that's an interesting miracle. Now the people will know that Elisha is really a prophet of God. But wait, wait for a minute. Listen, listen carefully to what God says. He says, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. Who has healed this water? I have healed this water, the Lord says. See, God healed it. God removed his curse. Only he can do that. It was his curse in the first place. And he's showing them a different side of himself, if you can call it that. He's showing them his love. He's just given his blessing and his grace on a cursed city. He's showing them that he is a God of mercy. He's showing them that he is a God who is inclined to heal rather than to destroy. Or, or to borrow a phrase from one of the commentators on this passage, curse, curseville has been turned into Graceburg. Curseville has just been turned into Graceburg. Well, that's the gospel story, isn't it? That's the gospel story. That's very familiar language to us, isn't it? Curses are overturned by grace. Or we sing sometimes, perhaps you do, we do in our congregation. He lifts the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Lifting the curse is what God does. Lifting the curse is his salvation plan. Lifting the curse is what he does for all who go to him. In this case, the leadership of Jericho went to him, and they found satisfaction. Now their trouble is over. Death in the water, it's gone. They don't have to look over their shoulder anymore, so to speak. 
Will it be me next time? My animals miscarrying? My, my wife, perhaps? Will my unborn child survive? No, now they're free from those fears. Free and away from his curse. Now, now they can rejoice. Rejoice in the goodness of God. The place is cursed no more. God takes it away, and he does it in a moment. That's God. That's the God we serve. He takes it, he takes it all away. And when we believe that, then our, then our lives, they become free. We become free. He has removed the curse. And I ask you, now, do you live free? Do you live free? Or, or does that curse still hang over you like, like a wet blanket? You see, the, the people in Jer Jericho, they could see the curse. It's gone. That means gone. It is no more. How about, how about you and I? Because you and I, we were cursed. Remember? Cursed. And God came to us in his grace, and he set us free. He saved us. We've been told the same thing, you and I. It's been said from this pulpit for years, I trust. The question is, do you believe it? Or, or are you still living with some sin in your life? You've, you've regretted it. You've confessed it. But you haven't let it go. In his forgiveness and his grace, he's removed it. He's let it go. But you can't let it go. Oh, brother, sister, learn a lesson. Learn a lesson from the God of Jericho. You see, God's forgiveness is complete. The curse is lifted. And we may now live, live new lives of, of praise, lives that overflow with thankfulness, Salty lives, as we called it this morning. It's wonderful. And then there are some who do not follow in God's way. And they don't go to God to have his curse removed. And for them, it's the opposite. And we see that in what happens next. No sooner is the miracle completed in Jericho, and Elisha's on his way back to Bethel. It's about 20 kilometers or so away walking distance, and there he meets up with some young men. And these young men are not just doing what immature men sometimes do. They, they, they can do some dumb things. They can show off. They can, they can try being tough. That's not what's happening here. The city, the city where they're from tells it all. They're from Bethel. Bethel. Well, what about Bethel? Well, Bethel had, at one time, way back when, been the place for altars. Joseph, remember, had named the place Bethel when he, when he saw that staircase into heaven, angels coming up and going, or going down and going back up. That was then. In these days, Bethel has a very bad reputation. It's only about 80 years before that King Jeroboam had set up a golden calf there in Bethel for the people to worship. And that man, Hiel, remember the man that rebuilt Jericho? He was from Bethel. He was from Bethel. Bethel is in the middle of apostasy. Now, the name Bethel means house of God. 
that right now it was the house of evil because the people there had forsaken their God for idols. Plain and simple. And these young men from Bethel are insulting Elijah. Go on up, you bald head, they said several times. And possibly they meant, you know, just keep going up on the road, will you please? Keep on moving. We don't want you here. That's one, one option. Perhaps that that's what they meant. Or, or they could have heard how Elijah had gone up in the whirlwind. And now they're inviting Elisha to do exactly the same thing. We can't be sure. We have no one to ask on that. Whichever it was, though, they were insulting God's prophet. Not only that, they very likely knew who he was because he had been in Bethel just days before with Elijah, and now he's wearing Elijah's coat. These are the youth from Bethel. Uh, one of my professors called them the bad boys of Bethel. They had learned nothing about fearing God. They had learned how to worship idols instead. Their parents had stopped serving God a long time ago. They were idol worshipers. And remember the second commandment? Remember the second commandment, Deuteronomy 5, we read it this morning. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And then this is the commandment with a promise attached. Here it comes. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, listen for it, punishing the children of, for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Maybe, maybe now you get what's happening here. This is approximately 80 years, say the third, maybe even the fourth generation. And so these young men, these hooligans, are challenging God's prophet. This is, this is insolence. This is hatred at its best or, or at its worst, if you prefer. They're showing contempt for the man of God and thus hatred for God himself. And they get what's coming to them. Two female bears, she bears, or two sows come out of the woods. Forty-two of them are mauled. Clearly this is God at work. After all, a, a bear might kill a person, maybe, maybe two, but, but not 42. It's a dreadful miracle of God with, with very deadly results. Never, never, never challenge God. Because God is keeping his promise here. And not just the promise that was found in the second commandment, as important as that one is. We read that already. There's another one. He made it back in the wilderness to his people. Listen to what he said in Leviticus 26. He says, if you, that is Israel, walk contrary to me and are not willing to obey me, I will bring on you seven times more plagues according to your sins. And then he says this, I will also send wild beasts among you, which shall rob you of your children destroy your livestock, and make you few in number. Then he says this, and your highways will be desolate. Well, talk about desolate. God's doing exactly, high, exactly this. The, the, the highway at Bethel is very desolate. Death hangs in the air. The wild beasts robbed them of their children, exactly as God had foretold. The reality of God's curse is on somber display, corpses littering the landscape. 
contrast here between these two stories, the one at Jer Jericho and then the one at Bethel, is either blessing, either it's either blessing when you go to God, like Jericho, or curse when you scorn God, like Bethel. It's one way or the other. There's, there's no middle ground, none, no middle ground. Now think, think in terms of today a little bit. These young men, they're the church, they're the young people of the day. These are covenant youth. They treated God's office bearer with insult and contempt. That's nothing new, is it? They treated God's office bearer with insult and contempt. It wouldn't be the first time that covenant people did that. People who know the word of God, they show no respect for God's appointed office bearers. And much later, the same kind of covenant people would assault and they would kill the great office bearer, the great prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. It wasn't the first time. It won't be the last time. There are even still covenant people who have no use for God's appointed servants, even today. And the sad fact is God will deal with them. He will deal with them. Now, maybe you think it wasn't their fault. You know, those boys didn't really mean any harm. They're just doing what young men do, sowing their wild oats, whatever. Please, that's, that's a terrible excuse. This is not some kind of tragic accident. This has to do with generational sin. In Bethel, in the following days, there will be funerals. The same mothers and fathers who had been bowing down to idols will now be bowing down in grief at the graves of their children. And if parents don't conform their lives to the word of God, then the fault for their unbelieving children lies with them too. When parents are indifferent, when they are blasé, when they are lukewarm, apathetic, bored, uncaring, well, then the, then the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And this, of course, doesn't take away the responsibility of the young people, but it connects the parents of these boys who should have known better, but didn't care to bring up their children in the way of the Lord. The Bible here is showing us an instance of the, of the seriousness of personal sin, that's the sin of these young men, but also the seriousness of generational sin. Sin that keeps on moving on down the family tree, the thinking that, well, you know, if my parents did it, I can too. This, this is our normal. This is what we do in our family. No, never mind. It's a, it's a warped conscience a blunted, warped conscience. Because if our children look like the children of Bethel, then God does give us a simple way out. There is a way out. The only way out is make a radical break with sin. Break with everything that stands in the way between you and Jesus Christ. Humble yourselves, as Peter says. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord. Humble yourself before him and his spirit will fill you. And then, then your children will learn from you. God will show his steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. 
That's how the, that's how the Christian life works. God calls us to live lives that, that seek to love him, to serve him, to follow him, to obey him. That's how it worked for the men of Jericho. In the middle of Baal worship, they, they looked to God for help. And he gave them what they asked for. And he showed them that he does not stay angry, that his anger has turned. That his anger can be turned. He lifts curses because that's what our God does. And he sends his word into this sinful world. And there are two consequences. Either, either he blesses those who believe or he, or he hardens the hearts of those who do not believe. It's one or the other. Doesn't he? Doesn't he? He sends his word. He does it every Sunday, twice. He continues to send his word even right now, right here in this workshop of the Holy Spirit, sending his word to warn, to call, to comfort, to bless, lifting the curse because his anger has been turned. All because the Lord Jesus Christ took all of that anger upon himself so that you and I would not have to. And he doesn't do it with salt. Like in Jericho, he does it with blood, blood. God comes to his people with his promise, canceling their sin. And when people go to him, he heals them. He responds. He delights. He loves his people. God comes to us, to you and to, uh, to me. We saw this now, just this, this evening or this afternoon. His promise of healing right here on display. Jesus came, God in the flesh. He took the curse on himself so that none of us here would have to bear it ourselves. He lifts the curse of death. He lifts the curse of death, but we may not take it lightly. Gives us blessing throughout the generations. Just go back and look at your generations. Look at all the marvelous, uncountable blessings. You may not take that lightly. We see his grace even when we feel so miserable, uh, miserably. And we may not take that lightly, never take that lightly. And instead, we go to him thankfully. We seek to love him in our weakness. We serve him and obey him as we are taught to do. And we may rejoice when we see our children growing up in the light of his word. And we give him the glory for that. Because surely you and I were not credit worthy ourselves it's a beautiful thing you know to see God continuing to care for his people we saw it on display just now we're living in the presence of God and we will watch him work in us also in you his, par his parents these parents here see him working in a church as we grow in faith and in love as we take the torch of truth in this generation and carry it further until the Lord returns. You see, he is showing us his loving kindness and it's to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. We saw it on display today. Amen.